I invite you to turn this morning to Colossians chapter 1 as we continue our study of, of Colossians 1. You know, my wife and I, Christy and I, grew up in southeast Missouri. Um, we were involved in a church there and uh, had a youth pastor that in God's providence he used to help connect us to countryside. Uh, we, that was in the 90s. We did sing, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. And in fact, we had disco motions for it. I won't show you those. But, um, but our, our youth pastor there had actually grown up in Rocky Wyatt's youth group before Rocky came to Countryside and became the youth pastor here. And so our youth group in Missouri and Countryside's youth group would occasionally get together for various camps or retreats and enjoy fellowship together. That was how Christy and I first got to know this church and, and many of the people here. And One of those retreats was our annual Bible quizzing retreat in Arkansas. We would drive from Missouri, having memorized portions of Scripture, and, and folks from Texas would come from Texas, and we would meet and play games together and quiz against each other and have a great time. And um, our, our church in Missouri had a, a couple of old yellow diesel school buses that we would travel to those retreats and, and camps. I have many memories on those buses, some of them fond, others not so much. But, um, but we, we were going to one of those retreats, and, and our youth pastor went to fill up one of those buses. And I imagine he had a lot of things on his mind, the details of the weekend, probably the pressure to to represent well against Rocky's youth group and Bible quizzing and all those things. And so he went to fill up that bus and he put gasoline into that diesel bus. And, uh, and partway in, he realized his mistake, noticed the handle wasn't green or whatever. And, and so he paid for the gas he never should have put into the bus and called a mechanic friend. And I, if my memory serves me, I think they, they worked to siphon all the fuel out of that bus. And and then they, he refilled that bus with diesel, took it to the church, and, and we loaded up and headed down I-55 towards Arkansas. Well, as you can imagine, not too far down the road, uh, black smoke began billowing out of the engine, and we ended up on the side of the road. You see, even a little bit of gasoline mixed with diesel creates all kinds of problems. My understanding is that it, it causes the fuel to ignite earlier than it should, and, and it leads to all sorts of issues with the engine, in our case, a nice ruined piston. Well, we eventually made it to the retreat a bit later than planned in various borrowed vehicles that had the right kind of fuel in them, and I'm sure we had a wonderful time together. You see, fuel, or the kind of fuel that one uses, matters. Matters when it comes to buses and cars, and it matters in the Christian life. See, in Colossians 1, we've been studying the fact that if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, you are called to live in a manner that is worthy of or befitting of your Lord Jesus Christ. It's important that we pray for and cultivate such a walk. But it's also important for us to be properly fueling a worthy walk. You see, why we pray for and strive to live in such a manner matters. And that's what we find at the end of our passage that we will study today. Colossians 1, we've been studying verse 9 and following. And if you look in your English Bible, you will notice that at the end of verse 12, you probably see a period there. In reality, verses 13 and 14 are a continuation of the same long sentence that begins in verse 9. Let's read verses 9 through 14 together. 
Paul writes and says, For this reason also, since the day we've heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As you see, this passage records Paul's prayer for the Colossians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We've already seen in that the foundations of a worthy walk in verse 9. We saw that a worthy walk is built on the work of God through the gospel. Paul had heard about that in their, in their life, the beginning work that God had done. And it's built on the prayers of the saints for one another. Paul is praying for them to walk worthy. And it's built on the knowledge of God's will through his word. He prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We also saw, secondly, the focus of a worthy walk, where Paul said that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. See, if God has begun a work in us through the gospel, we should be eager to live in a manner that is befitting of what Christ has done, that is worthy of him, and he defines that for us as pleasing him in all respects. Our focus is to be on pleasing Christ in everything, in every aspect of our life. We saw the remaining verses flow from this idea of walking, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And, and so last week we looked at four participles connected to that walk, which flesh out what that worthy walk looks like and, and helps us to cultivate such a manner of life. So we looked at the features of a worthy walk and we saw first its fruit in verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. So that we're to be striving to, to bear fruit in every good work, not as a means to our salvation, we are saved apart from works, but as a result of our salvation, for we are saved unto good works. So if you want to walk worthy of the Lord, be actively engaged in bearing fruit, both in your life, within the, the growth of your own character, and in the opportunities you have to do good deeds and be praying for one another to that end. And the second feature we saw is its growth. He prays that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. Knowledge is both a foundation of a worthy walk. It's necessary for it, and it is a feature of it, a, a growing desire to know God, knowing we never master the knowledge of God but as we rely on his revelation and the illumination of the Spirit, we eagerly yearn to know more of him, praying and striving to grow in our knowledge of him. And then we saw a third feature, an encouraging feature, it's strength, that we are strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. As Douglas Moose said, life, living a life worthy of the Lord is a high and difficult calling, in typical New Testament fashion, Paul reminds us that God gives what he demands. What an encouragement that we are strengthened with God's power to endure. 
to endure the, the trials of this life and, and to continue running the race God has set before us with endurance. And lastly, we saw a fourth feature of a worthy walk, it's perspective, joyously giving thanks to the Father. That's a, a worthy walk. That's what we are to be praying for, praying for ourselves and praying for one another. That's what we are to be striving for, to live in that manner. Now, why doesn't Paul stop there? Why doesn't he end that section, joyously giving thanks to the Father, period, and then pick up with a, a new theme? Well, here Paul is moving towards the overall theme of his letter, the all-sufficiency of Christ. If you look in verse 15, you see he begins a section that is focused on extolling who Christ is and what he's done. He says he is the image of the invisible God, and on and on he goes. And so Paul is transitioning from this prayer for the Colossians to the person and work of Christ. And, and these latter verses provide that transition. You notice in, in verse 13 at the end, he speaks of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And, and so Christ, who is, who is part of a, a pretty subordinate clause in that prayer, becomes the subject of the next section. But this is more than simply a helpful transition. It's not just Paul saying, well, I got to get from here to there, so I'll say some stuff that helps us to get there. This is a key part of what we must understand about a worthy walk, which is what is it that really fuels or should fuel such a walk. So let's consider today the fuel of a worthy walk. What is the proper motivation for this type of living and this type of praying? What is it that propels us to walk in this manner? Now, I want you to think of a, a college athlete who's representing a particular school. What is the proper motivation for them to play in a manner worthy of that program and, and to conduct themselves when off the court or the field in a, a way that, that gives a, a good representation of that organization or, or program? You know, for some athletes, it's purely a self-centered motivation. You know, they want to make it to the next level. They want to receive the praise and, and the encouragement of teammates or fans. It's, it's purely a focus on self. For some, it's more of an external motivation. It's, it's the rules the coaching staff puts in place and the fear of the consequences that come if they violate those rules. You know, those things may help to a degree, but in the end, those are insufficient motivations. What will truly motivate a player to that end to play and live in such a manner is, is things like respect for the school and the coach and the, the team and gratitude for the opportunity and blessing of being a part of that program. I mean, think about being a, a college freshman basketball player, walking on the campus of UCLA and, and looking up and seeing the 11 national championship banners and, and, and rightly responding and thinking to yourself, man, wow, not sure I belong here, but I'm sure glad to be here. And I want to represent this program well and carry on the tradition well. You see, in the same way, there is a right motivation or a right fuel for a worthy walk, and there are many wrong and 
insufficient motivations that, that we can easily slip into, motivations that flow often from our focus on self rather than on Christ. What are some of those insufficient or wrong motivations? You know, some people are motivated to live in this way out of guilt over their past failures. You know, maybe they, they look back on their life before becoming a, a Christian and, and the wasted life that they lived or look back on their time even early on in their Christian life and, and have guilt over the fact that they've failed to live in this manner and that propels them to live differently. You know, Paul could have motivated them in that way. He could have said, walk worthy and, and don't forget how many opportunities you've missed to do this in the past. Such a guilt-driven motivation may produce effort, external obedience, but it doesn't produce the joyful gratitude and eager obedience of a life befitting Christ. Others are motivated by a, a longing to be recognized or praised by others. You know, I want to be known as somebody who walks worthy. I want to be known as somebody who's bearing fruit and, and who's seen as joyful. And, you know, Paul could have motivated them in that way as well to, to think of how people think of them compared to others. He could have said, you know, you guys are doing well. Uh, I mean, not like Church of Thessalonica well. That's a whole nother level. But if you guys work really hard, you can probably get there. But that's not where he goes because such a self-centered motivation may, again, spur effort and external obedience, but it, it promotes glorifying self. It's really walking worthy of us, not walking worthy of the Lord. For others still, it's a desire to earn the favor of God. Misunderstanding that walking worthy is not about our worthiness, but His. Scripture warns against such a legalistic mentality that is all too common among believers where we think that now that we are a Christian, we somehow merit or earn God's favor through our efforts or through our obedience. Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Grace, highlights this reality that's so common. He says, having trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, we have subtly and unconsciously reverted to a works relationship with God in our Christian life. We recognize that even our best efforts cannot get us to heaven, but we do think they earn God's blessing in our daily lives. It's easy to think, well, I'll, I'll walk in a manner that's worthy of Christ, and, and God will respond to that with, with blessing in, in my life. I can merit something from Him. Now, clearly, we can please God. We're, we're told in this passage that part of walking worthy is seeking to please him in every respect and, and we're to strive to live faithfully. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, in the Christian life, all is of grace from the very beginning to the very end. When we think we can earn or merit anything from God, we, we have a, a proud legalistic motivation that may spur, again, discipline and determination and some external obedience, but it ultimately leads to a life of drudgery and a, a self-righteousness that's, that's arrogant and rather than what Paul has described and prayed for. In a related way, you may try to fuel such a walk simply by constant self-evaluation, by recognizing where you fall short on all of these things. And often this is connected to one of the other wrong motivations, but it may flow even from a, a genuine desire to live in the way that Christ has called us to. Always asking yourself, did I walk worthy today? Evaluating, you know, I think I, I did a fair amount of good works and read about God, but certainly missed some opportunities to joyfully give thanks today. I'll, I'll have to do better tomorrow. 
Well, we should examine ourselves. Well, we should intentionally strive to grow. We ought not be consumed with ourselves. Such morbid introspection, as Lloyd-Jones calls it, doesn't produce the maturity of thought and life Paul is praying for here. See, while we should seek to redeem the remaining time we have and to live faithfully and pleasing to the Lord and live a determined life of discipline and obedience and to examine ourselves and strive for intentional growth, those are not the fuel of a worthy walk. Those are putting gas in a diesel bus. What we see in this text is a worthy walk is fueled by awe at the gracious work God has done on our behalf through Christ. Again, Bridges writes, the solution to motivating obedience and holiness is to be so gripped by the magnificence and boundless generosity of God's grace that we respond out of gratitude rather than out of a sense of duty. You see, walking worthy of the Lord is not a checklist to be maintained. It is a response of love for the gracious God who saves. That's why Paul concludes this section with, as one commentator describes, a rehearsal of the deliverance from sin provided to the readers by God the Father through the Son. And so as we look at these final verses, I want us to consider three aspects of God's gracious work, initiated by the Father and carried out through the work of the Son, an understanding of which fuels our worthy walk. Notice the first aspect of God's gracious work we see at the end of verse 12, which is that the Father has qualified us for an undeserved inheritance. Verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I mentioned briefly last week that when we typically speak of qualifying for something, it is something that we do for ourselves. You know, you qualify to be a part of a team or you qualify to gain entrance into a particular school or program or you qualify for a promotion or a different position. This verse says it very differently. It says the Father has qualified us. We have been made adequate or sufficient when we had no adequacy or sufficiency within ourselves. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, we have not qualified ourselves. God has done that for us. And notice what God has qualified us for. What has he made us adequate or sufficient for? It says he has qualified us to share in in the inheritance of the saints in light. We have a share or a portion, an allotment in this inheritance of the saints in light. Now, you know, only certain people receive an inheritance, 
It's those who have been designated, typically in a a will, to receive an inheritance, and and those who who qualify through some relationship with that particular person, typically uh, just the fact that they are part of that family that qualifies them to receive that inheritance. Here it says, we have been qualified to share the inheritance of the saints in light. What is this inheritance that he's speaking of? Is it, you know, a old car or house or a bunch of stuff in the basement? No. The Old Testament speaks a lot about Israel's portion or inheritance, and and when it does, it's primarily speaking of the allotment of land that God had promised to them. You remember when they came out of slavery in Egypt and God brought them into the promised land, they divided the land up amongst the various tribes, and that was their share, their inheritance. Now, the New Testament does speak of God's people inheriting the earth in places like Matthew 5, 5. And and so it is true that believers will reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom and will have a share in in that land and in that situation, in the new heavens and the new earth. But this idea of inheritance is much broader than that. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 19, 29, when he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. This inheritance is the inheritance of eternal life. Other places we see it described as inheriting the kingdom of God, of of, of being a part of God's people in God's presence for all of eternity. Now, eternal life is not simply a length of life, although it is, but it's a quality of life, that of knowing God and being with Him. Hebrews 6.12 speaks of how we inherit the promises that God has made. This, there's many promises that God has given us about what this future will be, and, and all of those will be true, and all of those are part of what we look forward to. Notice this inheritance is for the saints in light. This is the inheritance of the saints in light. Saints is it's not just a, a football team, it's, it's the, the holy ones, it's the set-apart ones. It's those who are holy before God. And, and, and the reality is, when it says light, it's just reinforcing that idea, but the reality is that none of us qualify to receive the inheritance of the saints because we are not that. We are sinners, not saints. We walked in darkness, not light. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Those who are unrighteous don't get the inheritance that is for the saints in light. And he gives some specific examples. He says, don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All of us were unrighteous. Maybe your particular prominent sin wasn't on that list, but we all are unrighteous who who do not deserve that inheritance. But verse 11 says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. 
You see, God has qualified us. We were unrighteous, don't deserve that, but God has washed us. He has set us apart as his holy ones, and he has declared us to be holy because of Christ. By his grace, he has qualified us. We saw this idea in 1 Peter 1 that we read earlier where it talks about the Father through his great mercy causing us to be born again to a living hope to receive an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. How has God qualified us? Well, he's given us new life. We've been born again through the work of the Spirit. and We have that secure future hope. So the Father has qualified us for an undeserved inheritance. But how has he done that? How has he qualified us? I alluded to it previously, but it's tempting to think, you know, maybe he just lowered the standard. Maybe he said, you know what, I want somebody to get it, and so we'll grade on a curve, and at least a portion of humanity can, can get what I have for them. No, God didn't do that. We see more of how he qualified us in a second aspect of God's gracious work. We see, secondly, that the Father has transferred us to the kingdom of his Son. Notice verse 13. It says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He rescued us. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is not just a physical location. It wasn't that we were in a physically dark place and God pulled us out. Domain here refers to the authority or the, the power of darkness. We were under the authority of and lived in the darkness, darkness being a, a metaphor in Scripture for sin and rebellion against God. Turn to Acts 26, where we, we see Paul use similar language that really helps us to understand what he's referring to here and fleshes this out a little bit for us. In, in Acts 26, Paul is recounting what God had called him to do and in verse 17, how he was sent to the Gentiles to proclaim Christ to them. And verse 18 tells the goal of that, that, that he was sent to them in order, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. You see all the same ideas from our Colossians text here of, of inheritance and forgiveness, but also how they were called to turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Now here, Paul is, is speaking about what he was going to do to go to the Gentiles, what he was called to do, and, and the, the results of that. In Colossians, he's saying this is what has in fact happened. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness, from Satan's dominion and, and the dominion of sin, and he has freed us from that. You know, this idea of being rescued is, is pictured in the Old Testament reality of the Exodus. That's the, the primary picture of God's deliverance in the Old Testament, how the people were in slavery in Egypt and God delivered them. He brought them out of slavery. 
Only we were not being held against our will. The Israelites wanted to leave but couldn't, and God had to come and rescue them. For us, we were in the dominion of darkness, and we were really fine being there, happy to be there, living in accordance with our own desires. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 puts it this way. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He said, we used to walk just in, in lockstep, marching right along with the, the, the spirit of this age and, and the spirit of Satan, walking in accordance with the ways the world thinks and the world lives as influenced by Satan, Christ's enemy. Verse 3 says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were in the dominion of darkness, living out the desires of our flesh, doing what we wanted, and as a result, we deserved God's wrath. We were children of wrath. But God rescued us from that domain, it says, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We were in the domain of darkness and God pulled us out and placed us instead in the kingdom of the son he loves. This idea of being transferred was not uncommon in that day. It was used in contemporary Greek of a king or another authority taking a group of people often that he had conquered and transferring them to a new location, a new area of the kingdom in that manner. Think of Judah in the Babylonian captivity. You remember the Babylonians came and, and seized and, and destroyed Jerusalem. And what did they do? They hauled a bunch of the Jews back with them to Babylon. They transferred them back to Babylon. That's what God has done for us. He has transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's moved us from darkness to light, no longer slaves to sin, but of righteousness. And from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of Christ, no longer under the authority of Satan and sin, but under the authority of Christ. And he's done this through the new birth, by regenerating us, by giving us new life and a new heart so that we no longer live according to our own desires in lockstep with the world and Satan, but we are eager to follow Christ, eager to live for him. So why are we now qualified to receive an undeserved inheritance as part of God's people? Well, because God has made us part of his people. He's transferred us into his kingdom we are no longer God's enemies, but we are now citizens of Christ's kingdom and enjoy all the blessings and benefits that come with such citizenship. What an amazing display of God's grace. You know, most of us here today were born as citizens of the United States. For all the challenges, many self-inflicted, that our nation faces, we all recognize the great blessings that come as a citizen of this country. We enjoy unparalleled peace and prosperity and opportunity compared to much of the world. And if you were born here, as I was, it's easy to take those things for granted. But some in our church have 
have gone through a lengthy process to become citizens of the United States, culminating in the U.S. Citizenship Oath Ceremony. And what joy comes for them having completed that process when they, they finally are declared to be official citizens of the United States of America and now enjoy all the blessings and benefits of such citizenship. How much more amazing for the Father to have rescued us from the domain of darkness and to have transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. If you're in Christ, this has happened for you. You are now in Christ's kingdom. You enjoy all the benefits and blessings of being a citizen of his kingdom, and you share the responsibilities now of being a, a citizen and representative of the true king. You know, the full realization of that reality is yet future. We still live in this world. Satan has yet to be fully vanquished, and Christ has not yet returned to rule and reign and to ultimately conquer and defeat his enemies. We, we've got a little foretaste of that, you know, in the, the ministry of Christ as he came, working miracles and things, those were just a little glimpse of what life in the kingdom would be like, free from disease and, and death, as Christ demonstrated in his miracles, having all the provision that was needed as he demonstrated in multiplying the, the bread and, and the fish. And those were just a little glimpse of life in the kingdom. We long for and look forward to that day when Christ will return to rule and reign for all of eternity. So we can both recognize that we are in Christ's kingdom now, and we can look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of that. We can pray as Christ taught us to, your kingdom come. So the Father has qualified us for an undeserved inheritance, and he's done that by transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But again, how can he justly do that? Think of someone who's been fighting against the United States, maybe for Al-Qaeda. Maybe they participated in planning the 9-11 attacks or in other attacks on U.S. soldiers in Iraq or Afghanistan over the years. And you know, can they just change their mind and apply for U.S. citizenship and, and you know, enjoy all the benefits of that? No, that, that would be unjust. So how does God take us, who were his enemies, rebels against him, and transfer us to the kingdom of his son, promising us an undeserved future inheritance? Well, we find that answer in the third aspect of God's gracious work that Paul highlights, which is the Son has redeemed us from our sins. He says he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul will develop these ideas further in this letter. Here he's simply introducing them to us. This reality that in Christ we have redemption. If you've studied your Bible for any length of time or been a Christian for any length of time, you, you're familiar with this idea of redemption, of a payment that is offered, particularly a ransom payment used often in the context of a, a slave market, of purchasing a slave unto freedom. 
Why did we need redemption? Why was there a price that needed to be paid? Well, it's because of our sin. We were slaves to sin and owed a debt to God because of our sin and the just penalty that our sins deserved. This verse and others teach us that Christ paid that price for us by giving his life in our place. Romans 3.24 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We can be justified, declared righteous by the grace of God because Jesus paid the price. And how did he do so? Ephesians 1.7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It was the blood of Jesus poured out on our behalf. Not that there was anything unique and amazing in his blood, but the blood pictured the life of Christ given on our behalf, his death in our place. As Mark 10, 45 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christ offered payment of his life in our place to secure our forgiveness. That's what this verse says. It says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These are parallel ideas in this passage, really two sides of of the same coin. You see, redemption is the payment that was offered. Forgiveness is the other side of that coin. It's the release from or the cancellation of the debt. Why are we forgiven? Why has our debt been canceled? Why are we released from that debt? Well, it's because the payment has been offered. The debt has been paid. Turn over to Colossians 2. You see this connection in verse 13 and 14. Paul writes in verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How is it that he has forgiven us all our transgressions? Verse 14 says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, we owed a debt. We had violated God's law, and we rightly deserve the just punishment of our sin, and Christ has canceled that debt. How? Having paid that debt. And now that certificate of debt is is nailed to the cross and it's paid in full and we enjoy the forgiveness that comes from that. You see, we are now qualified to receive an undeserved inheritance because we're no longer God's enemies but are citizens of Christ's kingdom and God can justly do that because our debt has been paid through the substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf. So we've seen the gracious work God has done on our behalf through Christ. The Father has qualified us for an undeserved inheritance. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his Son, and that Son has redeemed us from our sins, so now we enjoy forgiveness. How do we respond to these amazing truths? 
Well, if you're not in Christ, if you've never repented of your sins and believed the gospel, you need to understand that these do not apply to you. You don't qualify for this inheritance of the saints in light. You are still in the domain of darkness, living under the authority of Satan and sin in rebellion against God. You will one day pay the full penalty of God's wrath against your sin. That debt will be paid, but it will be paid by you. But there's hope for you. God's gracious. He initiated a plan to save sinners. That the Father's plan involved His Son, the Son whom He loves. And yet He was willing to send that Son. And Jesus was willing to come to become a man so that he could live the life of perfection that you and I failed to live, so that he could die in our place as a substitute, taking the wrath our sin deserves, so that if we repent and believe in him, we can be rescued, we can be redeemed, we can be forgiven, we can be a citizen of Christ's kingdom with an eternal inheritance that is secure. So I urge you, Do not spurn that hope. Humble yourself before the Lord. Respond to the hope of the gospel with repentance and faith, calling on the name of the Lord even this day. But if you are in Christ, it is these realities that should fuel our worthy walk. Now certainly as you look at this text, this section most strongly connects grammatically and logically to the last of those four features we saw of a worthy walk, that of joyously giving thanks. It is this gracious work of God on our behalf that fuels our thanksgiving. But it fuels more than that. Understanding the work God has done on our behalf through Christ motivates us to pursue a worthy walk at all. Why do we want to live in a manner that magnifies and honors the Lord? Why do we desire to please Him in everything rather than to please ourselves? It's because of all He is and all He has done for us. Why walk worthy of Jesus? Because He's now your rightful King. Because you have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into his kingdom. And you enjoy the blessings of being citizens of his kingdom. And and look forward to a future inheritance that is secure as one of his people. Why walk worthy of Jesus? Because he redeemed us. He purchased us back. He lived the life of perfection and paid our debt through his substitutionary death on the cross. And now we are forgiven, we are cleansed. But not only does this motivate us to pursue a worthy walk generally, it also promotes the specific expressions of a worthy life that Paul has highlighted. What were those? We're told to be, or Paul prayed that we would be bearing fruit in every good work. Think about it. Because of the work of Christ, we want to proclaim that good news to others. Because we've been rescued and redeemed, we want others to know that glorious good news. And and so we want to proclaim that to others and represent him well in this world which spurs us on to bear fruit in every good work. Because of the work of the Father, we want to know more of him and what he's done. And so we will be eager to be increasing in the knowledge of God. 
to know Him more and to understand more of all that He has done on our behalf. Because of the grace of God already shown to us in Christ, we have confidence in His continued grace that we will be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, strengthened to endure. And because of the work of the Father through the Son, we have so much to be grateful for. We should be joyously giving thanks to the Father for all that He has done in initiating our salvation through the work of Christ. So you want to have a worthy walk? May that walk be fueled by awe at the work that God has done on your behalf through Christ. Don't let it be just a checklist. Don't let it be a self-centered motivation. Don't let it be even guilt over failings in the past. Be fueled by gratitude and wonder and awe at all that God has done for you. If you are in Christ, you've been qualified for an undeserved inheritance. You've been transferred to the kingdom of God's Son, and you've been redeemed from your sins. May that fuel you to walk worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, and may that fuel us also, as Paul did, to pray for one another to that end, knowing that that is a foundation of such a walk. May we as individuals and as a church be committed to pray for one another, to pray for all the practical details of life and the things going on, but to pray that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in response to all that He has done for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the amazing grace that You have displayed and the work that you have done through Christ. Lord, we are in awe of the reality that you have given us an inheritance with the saints in light. Lord, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be part of your will, and yet in your grace and kindness, you have given us that hope. And Lord, you've rescued us from the domain of darkness, and we are now citizens of your kingdom. We are part of your people if we are in Christ, and we are that because you have redeemed us through your Son. Lord, you sent the Son whom you love to live the life we couldn't live and to die the death we deserve. Lord, may that amazing reality of your gracious work fuel us to walk worthy this week. May we love you and live for you, and may we do so as you have called us to, walking in a manner worthy of you, to please you in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to you, the Father. Do this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.